In international news, a savage country mired in the Middle Ages has threatened to go to war against a savage country stuck in the Stone Age, causing annoyance among civilized people with better things to do. The medieval foreigners, who wear funny clothes and speak in an incomprehensibly guttural language, have accused the primitive foreigners, who barely wear any clothes at all, of violating tribal agreements formed hundreds of years ago when the medieval foreigners were primitive and the primitive foreigners were practically mythological. Democrats have suggested solving the problem by bringing millions of these unspeakable barbarians to our country where they can kill our citizens. Then Democrats will demonstrate compassion by crying over the foreigners' children and speaking fondly about their quaint traditional practices as if they were something other than blood-drenched atrocities. Presidential advisor John Bolton, conversely, has suggested we bomb the medievals into the Stone Age and bomb the Stone Agers into some presentient state before they could stand upright and use rude tools. President Trump, meanwhile, has threatened to levy tariffs on whatever natural resource represents the reason we're paying attention to these homunculi in the first place, while calling on Congress to sit down and pass a law about something, a suggestion that met with sustained laughter, followed by threats of impeachment, followed by a state of absolute inactivity, usually seen only in the far reaches of space or in Congress. Commentators at CNN blame the crisis on Donald Trump's racism, while op-ed writers at The New York Times, a former newspaper, blame Donald Trump's refusal to celebrate transgenderism as represented by the foreigners' habit of mutilating their women until their bodies were indistinguishable from those of men. The Washington Post, where democracy dies in unbearable boredom, excoriated Trump for his refusal to institute Barack Obama's plan to supply the medieval foreigners with nuclear weapons while providing the primitive foreigners with a big bag of rocks and spears. So it's another normal day in international politics. Now back to the urgent news about Miley Cyrus's opinions. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Clavin, and this is The Andrew Clavin Show. I feel hunky-dunky, life is tickety-boo. Birds are winging, also singing, hunky-dunky-dee-doo. Ship-shaped, ipsy-topsy, the world is a bitty zing. It's a wonderful day, hooray, hooray, it makes me want to sing. Oh, hurrah, hooray. Absurdity always makes me laugh, which brings me to the subject of Democrats, which brings me to the subject of the American news and entertainment media, which is the same subject as Democrats, which is the same subject as absurdity. And by absurdity, what I mean is that Democrats have used their near-monopolistic dominance of the news and entertainment media to create an elaborate fantasy about what is happening in America today. It's a provable fantasy, which they try to maintain with talking points from Capitol Hill, continually amplified on NBC and CNN and in the New York Times, then made into comedy routines on late-night television, and finally into movies supposedly based on a true story that was a fantasy in the first place. Trump is a Hitlerian tyrant. The destruction of the Russian collusion narrative actually proved the case for impeachment. Americans are systematically oppressed because of their skin color. American women are living in The Handmaid's Tale. Radicalism is justice. Freedom is radicalism. Speech is violence. I mean, really, what the hell? When Donald Trump gave his first inaugural, inaugural address and spoke about the economic carnage brought upon the Midwest by globalization, he was assailed for being absurdly negative. And maybe that was overstated, but at least he was describing something that actually exists. The Democrats are just riffing on nonsense. It's not that our country has no problems. It's not that there's never any bigotry or mistreatment of women. We're not in paradise. But really, in the immortal words of Tito the Chihuahua from the Disney non-classic Oliver and Company, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. The oppressive America the Democrats have made up is total 
fiction, a fiction that they have talked themselves and their followers into believing. But you know it's fiction because it can only be maintained by silencing the honest voices that oppose it, deplatforming us and blacklisting us and calling us hateful and shouting us down. In an empire of lies, no one is allowed to say that the emperor isn't wearing any clothes, but I will show you how the whole machine works. It was all happening yesterday, and it's right there, and we'll talk about it. But first, let us talk about Big Token. I have, this thing is an addictive app. Big Token is this app that lets you share data about yourself, your interests, your habits, and then you get paid for it. I've been playing with it. It's, it's kind of hard to stop. It's a lot of fun. Right now, you're share, already sharing enormous amounts of information with tech companies, and they make money off it. So should you. This is how BigToken works. First, you download the app, you sign up for a free BigToken account, and next you complete actions to earn points, like answering surveys or checking into locations, connecting your social accounts, and more. Then you can redeem your points for rewards such as cash and gift cards or donate your earnings to charity. You choose what data you share with BigToken, and then you get paid for it, and you can also get more points by referring friends and family. Your data is always secure in BigToken, and based on the data you choose to share, you'll be placed into specific ad groups, and brands will buy access to those ad groups for use in personalized advertising. But at least this time, you get paid. It's different. So if you want to start earning money for your data, go to the App Store or Google Play, search for Big Token. That's B-I-G-T-O-K-E-N. That's one word. Download the app and sign up. Make sure to use my referral code, Clavin. Again, search Big Token in the App Store or Google Play. Download the app and use my referral code, Clavin, to sign up claim your data and get paid and learn how to spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Mailbag tomorrow. Do, oh my God, please stop screaming at me. Uh, <laughs> go on to dailywire.com. Subscribe because you have to subscribe to be in the mailbag where it's a little comfortable, but you get to ask questions. Here's what you do. Go to dailywire.com, hit the podcast button, hit the Andrew Clavin podcast. It's a little mailbag thing. Press that. You can ask me anything you want, religion, your personal life, political questions, all my answers are guaranteed, certified, 100% correct, and will change your life sometimes for the better. Uh, so, Tito the Chihuahua, my hero. <laughs> hey man, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. <laughs> Living in America, but I mean, it is just, it's just a nightmare in the imagination of the left. You know, yesterday I played this clip uh, of an abortion radical saying that a, having a baby is doing violence to the mother's body. Uh, so we, we have to commit violence against it. We have to kill it. That's why abortion is justifiable. It's obviously kind of a kook, but uh, kind of a kook. Um, but, but it sums up the left's attitude, doesn't it? That this terrible stuff is happening. They're so oppressed, so they're justifying oppressing oppressing others. They're justified in shouting you down on campus because your speech is violence. It's all in their imagination, but it justifies the terrible things they're doing. You know, we talked about that New York Times piece yesterday about silencing people on YouTube, on YouTube because they're radicalizing people. And they found a guy who was so radicalized, he actually dated a religious woman. That's how radicalized he was. I mean, that was really what it was. He never bought into the crazy theories about white supremacy, never went into any of that. But he dated an evangelical Christian, and that was what made them radical. And that's why we should knock all these people off YouTube and deplatform form them. It's, it's all about the fact that they own the media. They own the entertainment media and they own the news media and then the Democrats send out their talking points and those become A, the news, and then history. You know, there's a show on 
uh, Netflix right now called When They See Us about something that I remember. I was in New York when this happened, the Wilding incident, where a woman was just a Central Park jogger, was beaten and raped to, to the, almost to the point of death. Other people were beaten uh, and beaten also. Uh, it was about 30 rioters went through uh, Central Park and five guys were sent away for it. And then later on, somebody, uh, this guy in prison, a psychopath said, no, it was I who did the raping and they found out his DNA did match up. And so these guys were theoretically exonerated. The thing is, they weren't exonerated for all the things that they were charged with. They were charged with, you know, riot and assault and all these things. And they were not exonerated for that, but they were, and they made a big killing off it and they reformed their lives. It looks like, you know, so they're doing this thing when they see us in which Linda Fairstein, who writes a piece about it in the Wall Street Journal today, very well-respected prosecutor, also a, a fairly good uh, mystery novelist, um, she wrote a piece saying, look, these guys confessed. They made a statement. They have sh uh, parts in this Netflix show about Linda Fairstein as a bigot, which she never was, as, as kind of planning how to set these guys up, which she never did, leaving them in their cells, not allowing them to go to the bathroom, which, as she says, if that had really happened in any good pretrial hearing, they would have brought that up in order to get their statements thrown out of court. But in fact, they said there were confessions, there were bloodstains, there was corroborating testimony, there was dirt on their, uh, on their uh, clothes. Uh, one of them testified, made the statement that he had simulated sex on this poor woman's body. And in fact, they found semen in his underwear, which would like uh, corroborate that. But they have this powerful fantasy making machine. So that now as, um, uh, um, as someone once said, that this is this is all people will remember. People will watch this and they will think this is reality, especially the left that just eats this stuff. They read the New York Times every day and they think that's the news instead of hate speech about Donald Trump. So it's all theater with these guys. Yesterday in the House Judiciary Committee, Jerry, which is the one run by Jerry Nadler, right? And they had this uh, hearing with a title. It even has a title. So they, I guess so it makes it easier to turn it into a Netflix movie. Lessons from the Mueller report. But they don't have any lessons from the Mueller report. Mueller exonerated Trump on charges of Russian collusion, after which anything he may have screamed, fire that man who will rid me of this tur turbulent priest, whatever he said, doesn't mean anything, right? Because he never did anything to stop the investigation. He cooperated with the investigation. They gave millions of documents. Everybody, Don McGahn went and testified. So they got nothing, but they're trying to keep this narrative alive rather than say, oops, never mind, which is what they should say. So who do they bring to testify? John Dean. Now, for those of you who don't remember John Dean, all right, John Dean was the architect of the cover-up up in Watergate, right? Not a hero. He's not a hero. He was the architect. He was the mastermind. What are the, the, the FBI called him the master manipulator of the cover-up. To save his keister, he testified, and it was a big deal that, uh, that Nixon's attorney went and testified, right? And because of that, he was, he was convicted of only one fe felony. He dealt down to one felony. He uh, was given a sentence of one to four years in prison, but in the end, he served that time by hanging out in the, um, with the Democrats, basically, and testifying, and then th that was his time served. So he was like four months uh, time served, and he was let go. So he, he made a deal. Since then, he has been making a career out of accusing Republicans of being worse than Nixon. He wrote a whole book about George W. Bush, worse than Nixon. I, I don't remember the title, but it was something like that, right? So they bring him on to testify about this case about which he knows nothing, right? A complete 
dog and pony show. Matt Gates just took them apart. Let's play that clip. Here we sit today in this hearing with the ghost of Christmas past because the chairman of the committee has gone to the Speaker of the House and sought permission to open an impeachment inquiry. But she has said no. And so instead of opening the impeachment inquiry into Donald Trump, which is what the chairman wants to do and what I presume a majority of Democrats want to do, we're here reopening the impeachment inquiry potentially into Richard Nixon, sort of playing out our own version of that 70s show. And, and what I really regret... It, it is Dean, striking, is Mr. Gates. here as a prop. You it are is. functionally here as a prop because they can't impeach President Trump because 70% of Democrats want something that 60% of Americans don't. So they're in this no-win situation, and you sit before us here with no knowledge of a single fact on the Mueller report on a hearing entitled Lessons from the Mueller Report. Mr. Here's Gates, the can I answer not, your question, it's please? It's not your time, Mr. Dean. It's my time. So, so, here's, the, okay. so here's the deal, right? We, we have a false accusation against the President of the United States that he was an agent of Russia. My colleagues on the Democratic side made that accusation. And so where do we go from here? I mean, that is devastating stuff. And then uh, Steve Cohen, the Democrat congressman, uh, he says this is why it had to be done. Let's cut to well, it's not just a show, but, it, but for the part of it that it is a show, it's okay. The American public needs to be shown what was in the Mueller report. I think it's been said only 2% of the people read it, and I can understand that. It, it's not the most, uh, it's not page-turner material. Uh, so the American public took what Barr gave him in his three-and-a-half-page synopsis, claiming there was no collusion, and collusion is not even a legal term and was not in there. It's like, my dad owns a house committee. Let's put on a show. You know, he's saying it's worth doing it because nobody read the bar, the uh, Mueller report. If people had read the Mueller report, they would have said, wow, this president, boy, he really yells a lot and he says dopey things, but he doesn't do that much. As bad. They can see that. They can see that with their own eyes. They don't need to read the Mueller report. He was let off the hook for being a Russian spy, which is what they accused him of, treason. They said this on CNN again and again. They said it on NBC. You know, he committed treason. He was a Russian asset, as they like to put it. It, it didn't happen. And so they're just running this show with this. As, as Gates said, it's a prop. Ring. Ring's mission is to make neighborhoods safer. These are really cool. I mean, I use them. I have them, but I like to use them from the other side. When I visit my pal, uh, Jonathan Hay, and I press the button and I say, hey, it's me. And he can see me on his phone and talk to me and say, oh, my God, nobody's home. There's nobody in here. It really works well. You might know about their smart video doorbells and cameras that protect millions of people. They also have an excellent uh, motion-sensitive uh, floodlight that goes on. Ring helps you stay connected to your home anywhere in the world. World. So if there's a package delivery, a surprise visitor, you'll get an alert and be able to see, hear, and speak to the people there from wherever you are on your phone. That is thanks to the HD video and two-way audio features on Ring devices. As a listener, you have a special offer on a Ring starter kit that's available right now with a video doorbell and the motion-activated floodlight cam. The starter kit has everything you need to start building a ring of security around your home. Just go to ring.com slash Clavin. That's ring.com slash Clavin. Anyone comes to your home, you just press the button, look at them and say, how do you spell Clavin? And if they know, do not let them in because they've been listening to the show and you never know what that, that is going to do to the human mind. So why is all this allowed? Why is all this even covered? Why is any, all this not just laughed off of television? It's because Donald Trump is such a threat, a Hitlerian threat to the nation. Here is Hillary Clinton giving the case. So when I read a book like Madeline's, and you want to just 
jump up and yell at points like why didn't more people speak out you know where where were the leaders where were the business leaders and the academic leaders and and the press leaders and for a million different reasons in a lot of these settings uh, people were either not paying attention or they had the unfortunately foolish idea that a Mussolini or a Hitler could be controlled and so the demagoguery, the appeal to the crowd, the very clever use of symbols, the intimidation, verbal and physical intimidation, was overlooked. And this is, this is a classic pattern. There is nothing new about it. It's just different means of messages being delivered. And I think given the rapidity with which information can be conveyed today because of the internet, it is an even more dangerous set of circumstances. Now, the absurdity is strong in this one. Uh, you know, she's comparing Trump to Hitler and Mussolini. She's comparing him to Hitler and saying, well, the appeal to the crowds, the clever use of symbols, the intimidation. Adolf Hitler came to power, I think it was 1933. He manipulated the parliamentary system in Germany, uh, got himself in power legally, but with a lot of shenanigans, but, but legally. Within a year, within a year, Adolf Hitler had eliminated any other party except the Nazi party. There were no more parties in Germany. He had gotten rid of trade unions. He had banned Jews from uh, kinds of work and basically made them uh, you know, non-citizens, non some of whom couldn't even get food in the towns in which they lived in. Where is any of that happening, right? They had the Night of the Long Knives within at least maybe a little over a year, the Night of the Long Knives, where a thousand people were arrested and slaughtered uh, because they were not what exactly the guys who brought Hitler to power, the SA, were not the guys who wanted to consolidate his power, the SS. So he just wiped them out and wiped out anybody who had opposed them. Where the hell is that happening? Donald Trump holds rallies, Hitler holds rallies, so Donald Trump is like Hitler. It would be nonsensical if it weren't for the fact that they are backed up by the press. And the press loves it because it makes them feel like heroes. You know, Jim Acosta, Jim, Look at Me, I'm Jim Acosta, has a new book out. I believe it's called uh, Look at Me, I'm Jim Acosta by Look at Me, I'm Jim Acosta. And I think the case he's making is that we should look at him because He's Jim Acosta. Now, Jim Acosta is a clown. He, been, he sits there and he shouts things at the president. He tells the president what he thinks is if that's news, nothing that Jim Acosta thinks is news, literally nothing that he thinks is news. But CNN, where Jim Acosta works, has his book, Look at Me, I'm Jim Acosta, and has him on the Brian Stelter show uh, <laughs> to talk about the, the terrible oppression of the press under Adolf Trump. Do I have any regrets? You know, I, I wish uh, at times that the press had been a bit more in solidarity with one another uh, and, and standing up to this White House and saying, listen, um, you know, the president can't call us the enemy of the people. We're, we're not going to go along with that. And I think we've missed some opportunities here and there to challenge that. I will say one of the things that I'm most grateful for yeah. uh, during this experience is how just about every news organization in Washington and here in New York stood behind us here at CNN when they took away my press pass. Yeah, that was a lawsuit. very important First Amendment case, and I talk about it in the book. Had the, the Trump administration won that uh, case, Brian, it would have sent shockwaves through our industry. It would have put a, a real chilling effect on the First Amendment in this country. And people might say, oh, you're just puffing yourself up. You're, you know, you're higher in your own fumes. No, the Trump administration's own lawyers went into the courtroom and said that the president of the United States can throw out whoever he wants out of the White House. 
<laughs> that's, this is a guy who manhandled a female aide because she was trying to take the mic away from him long after he had had his question and been, you know, and they threw him out for rudeness, which I think they would have been able to do had they actually followed the case up and appealed, but they didn't want to make a big fuss out of it. Nobody wants to take on people who buy their ink by the barrel, as somebody once said. You know, so this is the oppression. Now, if they were oppressed, right, I mean, he's not even making any sense because he's saying we wish we were in solidarity, but they stood behind him when he was thrown out. They don't want to stand behind him because he's a clown. Let, let's just take a look at this oppressed press that cannot speak because they're so afraid of the physical and, and mental intimidation wrought on them by Donald Trump. Here they are, recently Nancy Pelosi, basically trying to appease her, her base in Congress, said, I was quoted as saying, I would like to see Donald Trump in jail. I'd like to see him in jail. And that was, she was just showing how tough she was so she doesn't actually have to go through with impeachment, which would probably cost them the 2020 election. So here, uh, here is cut number five, the press amplifying that. Do you want to see the president in prison instead of impeaching him? So what was your reaction when you heard Speaker Pelosi reportedly saying that she wants to see President Trump in prison? But here's the question. Would you like to see President Trump in prison? Do you think President Trump committed crimes that could be prosecuted? He did. Uh, when Nancy Pelosi says she wants to see the president of the United States in prison, is that at all realistic? You know, I, I think it could be realistic. No one is above the law. And that includes President Trump. If it determines that we lead to impeachment or if he ends up in jail, so be it. Now, Bob Mueller almost said that he should be in jail. If you become president in 2020, would you want your Justice Department to pursue charges against President Trump? Do you want to see President Trump in prison? Well, let me press you, uh, Congressman. Do you want to see the president of the United States in jail? More than anything else, um, Wolf, look, the, the lizard brain that I have says, uh, I hope bad things happen to this man. Hey, man, if this is torture, chain me to the wall. <laughs> really? I mean, if, if these guys were oppressed, how is it they're calling for the imprisonment of the president? I mean, how is it they call for impeachment every day? How is it, if they're oppressed, that they can just rattle off all these charges against uh, Donald Trump? and nothing ever happens. It is just an amazing, they, they're, we're living under racial tyranny on Netflix, but not in real life. We uh, have Watergate going on in Congress, but not in real life. We have oppression of the press on in the press, but not in real life. They are using their domination of the media to create a fantasy world of oppression that simply does not exist. No one has time to go to the post office, especially if you live here in L.A. where you, no one has time to go anywhere because the traffic is just so bad. I love the post office. I use it a lot, but I cannot get in my car and drive the half a mile because it's 40 minutes to get there. So you use stamps.com. It's one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't even get at the post office. Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices, an online seller shipping out products, or even a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, or just a guy who wants to send a, a letter Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Once your mail is ready, just hand it to your mail carrier, drop it in the mailbox. Box. It's that simple. It's a no-brainer, saving you time and money. Right now, my listeners get a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Claven. That's Stamps.com. Enter Claven. 
stamp a letter, send it out to find out how do you spell Clavin. It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No E's. No E's in Clavin. So yesterday I did an interview. I'm going to stay on and not cut you off if you're watching on Facebook or YouTube, but come over to dailywire.com and subscribe so you can be in the mailbag tomorrow. I I have met uh, some of the most famous stars in Hollywood, certainly. Uh, I've met one president. I've met a lot of famous people. I never get overawed. I'm not never really that uh, impressed uh, by who I meet. Not that some of them aren't great people. Not that some of them aren't actual heroes. Yesterday, I was overawed. Yesterday, I met a guy who actually overawed me. When I was learning to fly a plane, I like to learn to do different things. It helps me in my work, uh, and it keeps my mind sharp and all this. And I got a pilot's license a few years back. And while I was getting my pilot's license, I got really involved in aviation, in the history of aviation. And I would study these heroes. And they were heroes like the Wright brothers, these very quirky little brothers who beat out the government in building, inventing the airplane. There was uh, Charles Lindbergh, who uh, as a politician was not that great a guy, but as an aviator was a genuine, genuine innovator and hero. Uh, John Glenn was one of my favorites. But there was just nobody that really struck me like the Tuskegee Airmen, a a group of African-American military pilots who fought in World War II despite the bigotry that tried to prevent them, uh, that surrounded them. And yesterday, I got to meet uh, Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, who was one of them. I have to tell you, I would never get nervous doing interviews with anybody. I was actually nervous and overawed. Uh, they were they tried to, to stop them from doing what they do. Eleanor Roosevelt famously went up and flew with one of them, uh, and that really made a difference. Uh, Colonel Stewart uh, has a new book out called Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's firsthand account of World War II. It's co-authored by Philip Handelman. It tells uh, his experience flying over Europe while helping to defend freedom, uh, even though he wasn't afforded that same freedom in his own country. If I ever had sat down and talked to a giant, it was yesterday. I think you'll really enjoy the interview. Take a look. Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, it's an honor to meet you and an honor to have you here. I'm so glad you could come on. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's start at the beginning. How, how did you get into flying in the first place? Well, I guess it was a desire ever since I was a child. I was born in Newport News, Virginia, not too far from Langley Field. And my parents tell me that uh, while in the crib, I used to watch these planes from Langley Field flying over and used to Google at them. And uh, at two, the family moved to New York and uh, moved about a mile and a half from the airport there, it was uh, named uh, North Beach Airport at the time, but in 1939, it changed its name to LaGuardia Airport. <laughs> but uh, as a teenager, I used to go out and just watch the planes take off and fantasize about uh, wow. being up in the cockpit and flying the plane myself. And so did you start flying before the war, before the military? Never was in a plane before going into the uh, Cadet Corps, and uh, that was my first plane ride. So now... How did you find out that there was, did you find out first that there was going to be an an Air Corps for black people or did you just volunteer? Well, I always felt as though I wanted to be a uh, pilot and I didn't really know about the restrictions at that time that the prejudice involved there, that no blacks were flying in the airlines, nor would they accept any at the time. I'm talking about before the war. But as the war clouds started gathering in 1938, 39, and 40, uh, a draft took place. And uh, any able-bodied citizen, uh, anywhere from 18 to uh, 38, had to register for the draft and was subject to a lottery of recall as far as the uh, going into the service was concerned. I knew I would probably be going in at uh, 18 because of the draft there. And one way to 
beat going into the service and just being assigned anywhere is to choose a branch of the service and volunteer. So okay. that's what I did. I, I volunteered, and when I went to volunteer, I found out that uh, they did not, at the time, accept African-Americans for training as uh, air crew members or pilots there. Uh, it was a little while after that uh, in high school that I happened to read someplace that the Air Corps relented and decided that, yes, we will go ahead and accept African-Americans for training as uh, pilots and uh, air crew members, but it must be on a segregated basis. Well, what I did, you know, I, I forgot about the word segregated basis. I just saw the one that, yes, we will accept them. Yeah. I sped right down to the uh, recruiting center and uh, volunteered. I took the test uh, that they had at the time. They gave you a, uh, a mental uh, and physical test, right. and uh, I was accepted. And then on, uh, I was called to service on April, in April of 1943. Okay, and so you've never flown before. Never had flown yeah. before. And and it was, you know, quite an experience yeah. because I, I had fantasized about flying. I'd see the planes flying in the air and I'd imagine myself yeah. at the controls and I imagine what the controls would be like. And uh, as a kid, I used to uh, have one of these, what we call pushos, but they're uh, uh, go-karts. Okay. And the pedals on the go-kart, uh, you, you push the right pedal to, to go left and you push the left pedal to go right because it, it was a pivot right. on, in, in the front there. And the first time I got in the plane and the instructor says, well, you've got the controls there. He says, try a left turn, you know, and I pushed my right foot in on the rudder <laughs> to make a left turn. So, so I had to get over that negative transfer. Right. And of course, a view, the perspective from the cockpit was entirely new to me. Yeah. Uh, they had the section lines, as you're familiar with, yeah. and the different identification uh, uh, areas on the ground. So. Uh, it was becoming used to that, and uh, but it, it, it came to it quite fast. Now, when, when you actually got into the service, did you encounter prejudice within the service? There are stories about white commanders who came to the uh, Tuskegee Airmen who were not sympathetic. Uh, did you encounter that? I did not encounter uh, that. Uh, this is not to say it didn't occur. Right. But uh, when it occurred was prior to my going into the service there. Uh, actually, the uh, uh, African-Americans who were taking flight training, uh, this occurred in uh, early 1941, and I didn't go in until 1943. So okay. a lot of that era uh, of a transition and uh, accommodation for the uh, uh, African-Americans uh, had already taking place to a certain extent. So uh, your, your question, uh, to answer it uh, uh, briefly, is that uh, no, I did not run into a lot of the... Uh, in fact, I, I had a great deal of respect for the instructors that I had, who were all white yeah. at the time. They, I mean, they taught me to fly, and they taught me to fly well. Right. And except for maybe an incident or two or something like that, uh, uh, everything went well. Quite smoothly, and, and were you, you you went into combat? You did go into combat. I did go into combat, okay. and uh, after the uh, training, I uh, uh, went overseas to Italy, and uh, I was assigned to the 332nd Fighter Group, and uh, our job was to escort B-17s or B-25, uh, B-24s, Liberators, 
uh, to their targets in Central Europe there. And of course, the job being to protect those bombers from uh, interception by uh, uh, foreign uh, enemy aircraft. And it was our job to ward them off. And of course, we, we saw the responsibility there because each one of those bombers, there were 10 crew members, you know, mm-hmm. just the pilot, co-pilot, navigator, bombardier, and uh, the, the gunners there. And uh, any one of them that was shot down, you're, you're going to potentially lose yeah. 10 men there. So it was a, it was a responsibility. And we, we recognized that responsibility and we, we tried our best to... Uh, I have to ask you this because, I, you know, I've, I've flown planes. One of the things that when you fly a plane, right. you start to think about flying a plane while being shot at. <laughs> it, it's, I mean, flying a plane is hard. Yeah. It's hard to fly a plane. Of you know, and people start shooting at you. So the first time you got into a plane and you took off, were you overwhelmed or did you think, no, I can do this? Uh, I, I had the confidence in myself you at did. the time. You know, what had happened was I guess I had had about... Uh, seven hours in instruction in the PT-19, uh, uh, which was a 75 or 90 horsepower aircraft. But uh, anyway, the uh, instructor, I knew that it was coming because he said, taxi over by the wind tee. And a taxi by the wind tee, and he was sitting in front there, and he started unbuckling, and I said, this is it, you know. <laughs> yeah. He uh, stepped back on the wing there, got out and stepped back on the wing, and he says, well, go out do what you've been doing with me all the time and everything will be fine and just uh, come back uh, to the tee here when you land. And I says, oh boy, this is it. So I remember breaking ground. I remember going down the grass strip there and uh, pulling back on the stick yeah. and breaking ground. And then that was that feeling of exhilaration. I said, it's mine, I'm doing it, you know, and yeah. this is it. So I tack- came back around and landed taxied up to the tee, and he says, take it around again. So he did this three times, and that was it. I, ah, that's great. That's great. So, now, so now you're flying a plane, yes. but you're in combat. <clears throat> how, how do you uh, control a plane while under attack? I mean, Well, well uh, you learn to do these things, you know, and uh, uh, it, I guess what they call mental and physical coordination, or all, all of them come into play. Yeah. Uh, because of your uh, your training there, but uh, I, I, I guess you know the two things I remember in combat there was the first time I went on a mission, and the second time was when I got into a, uh, a dogfight with a number of enemy planes, and uh, I ran into a horde of uh, FW 190s, which was a premium German fighter plane, and it was up in Austria. And we were on what was known as a fighter sweep at the time there, and there were seven of us that had voluntarily separated from the uh, rest of the squadron that we were flying with and the bomber formation. And uh, this horde of uh, German fighters attacked us. Uh, Three of us were shot down. Uh, The first were made it back to friendly territory, Yugoslavia, and landed there. The second pilot, he was uh, shot down and killed instantly. Uh, the third pilot, a fellow by the name of Walter Manning from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, uh, his plane was disabled and he had to bail out. And he bailed out over a town. It was uh, Lenz, Austria. And uh, when he landed, a uh, mob uh, of the local citizenry picked him up and took him to the local jailhouse and uh, 
put him in jail, but two nights later, uh, that same mob uh, broke into the jail and took Walter out, beat him up pretty badly, and then lynched him from a Latin post. Oh, God. So these things that happened during the war. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, it wasn't, you know, I mentioned it wasn't just unique as far as the African-American pilots were concerned. Right. This happened to a, a lot of the white pilots that went down, especially the bomber crews. Yes. And uh, anyway, I, uh, incidentally to that, uh, just a little over a year ago in April, uh, April 1st, the uh, government of uh, Austria invited me back over because they made a memorial to uh, Walter, and uh, they were uh, having recanted about the populace murdering uh, Walter at the time there, so they wanted to give a memorial to him and uh, represent it as the Austrian government. So I was invited over to that memorial, That's which fine. was very, very, very moving. But... Uh, on top of knowing the responsibility of guarding the bombers, you guys were pioneers racial pioneers in a, in a country still in the throes of uh, segregation of all kinds of yes. bigotry. Yes. Were you aware, did that weigh on you? My eye was on the, uh, on the prize. And as I tried to mention before, is the prize was my getting my wings, becoming a pilot. This is something before the war I wanted to do. And uh, I wasn't going to let anything get in the way and uh, certainly not defeat myself and the objective that I had there by uh, caving in to the uh, uh, discrimination that was at hand at the time. So in keeping my eye on the prize, I just steadily uh, went after the uh, wings there. I graduated in uh, in June of 1944. I got my... uh, second lieutenant's bars, and uh, I got my wings yeah. here, and uh, I didn't even know how to drive a car yet. <laughs> but, <laughs> I flew a plane before you drove a car. But in New York, <laughs> in New York I didn't need, you know, the yeah, family course, didn't need but, a car, you yeah. know, with the transportation system that they have there. When you came back from a war, one of the things that always shocked me about the Tuskegee Airmen is they were not recognized uh, after the war, as much as you would have thought. I mean, it's, it's shocking to me that your book is, is only coming out now, uh, Soaring to Glory. I mean, it's one of the great stories of World War II. Um, did you feel that when you came back? Did you want a little bit more credit than... Uh... Yeah, I just sort of dismissed it at the time as far as uh, getting credit and the, the accolades and that type of thing. And Well, you know, I mean, as I said, uh, I, I think there's something like a million men that were under arms, you know, and when you... When you compare yourself to that, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, 11 million. 11 million when you yeah. compare yourself to that 11 million, there you're, you're not even a drop in the bucket there. So I, I really didn't consider what I had done as being, you know, that great. You know, mm. I did my part as uh, 11 million other guys did who were in the service there. Uh, when I got out of the service there, or when I got back home, it was the... Uh, same old, same old, as far as the social atmosphere was concerned, and uh, uh, the jobs that were not available to African Americans at the time were still not available mm. to African Americans. So, but what I did is I, I didn't let that stop me from trying to pursue my ambition as to become a uh, a airline pilot, and I, I did apply. Uh, to a couple of airlines, and I was rejected, and you know, uh, because of my color. But uh, 
happily to say is that within a few years, uh, the airlines recanted and they uh, started uh, accepting African-Americans as uh, air crew members uh, and pilots until today, where every major airline you have, you have uh, sure. first pilots and uh, who are flying with the airlines and also some of the uh, other airlines, are not airlines, but the carriers like UPS and FedEx that uh, are heavily populated by uh, uh, African uh, Americans there. I was, you know, and most gratified uh, just a couple of years ago and I was taking a flight from Detroit, I forget where I was going, but in entering the plane, I looked in the cockpit there and the two pilots were in there and they were both African-Americans. And I said, wow, but the thing that really got me is, would you guess that they were both female? <laughs> <laughs> so my, my last question, because I'm out of time, unfortunately, I, I could right. talk to you for a long time. Sure. But I, when you see, you've seen so much change. I mean, you've seen so much uh, become different over your lifetime. Yes. When you talk to young people, what is it you want to tell them? I want to tell them to keep their eye on the prize. Yeah. And uh, uh, whatever you do is uh, pursue excellence uh, in doing it there. And uh, don't let uh, 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 hate or hurt turn you around from what you want to do there. You know, dismiss that as uh, just an emotion that uh, you, can, you can overcome and uh, uh, pursue your dreams. And if you do have to uh, uh, turn around that uh, dream because uh, it's, it's evaporating or something like that, uh, find yourself a fallback position and get that fallback position early just in case uh, what you wanted doesn't come true there and do uh, like uh, I, I had done to a fallback position there. I decided to go back to school. I went to New York University, got my degree in mechanical engineering followed the uh, uh, career path up through private industry then, and uh, actually I uh, retired as vice president of a Fortune 500 uh, oil and pipeline, oil and gas uh, pipeline company. Oh, wow. I, Colonel Stewart, I, you know, you've not only helped defeat one of the greatest enemies of humankind, you made our country a better place. It's an honor, it really is. Thank you so much, Thanks. it's been my pleasure. Thanks very much. Already. Ah, that's Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart. The book is called Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's First-Hand Account of World War II. It's co-authored by Philip Handelman. You can tell I got, uh, you know, I, I admit it, I was overawed by the guy. I mean, he just, uh, you know, I, I have this theory um, that that change comes. I'll say this is a final reflection here, that, that activists don't do anything that activists ride the tide of change. Change is made by guys like that, okay? You know, I, when I was studying all these different uh, aviation heroes, I watched the HBO movie, Tuskegee Airmen. There are two movies. Uh, one was made by the Lucas people. It's called something like Red Tails. Uh, Colonel Stewart himself said that that one was a little bit, it was too much Hollywood, but the, the HBO one was pretty good, I thought. And uh, uh, John Lithgow is in it as kind of an evil, or racist, I should say, uh, uh, senator trying to stop the airmen uh, from being formed. And I was watching it with my daughter, who was uh, still living in home at the time, and he, Lithgow makes this racist speech, and she turned to me and he, she said, I, I, is he insane? Is this senator, in, not Lithgow, obviously, is this senator insane? And, I, you know, I, I tried to explain to her that when insanity is the narrative, uh, sane people 
uh, are, do insane stuff. You know, I talk about this with George Washington holding slaves. I think it's true today of the left with abortion. Uh, you know, I think that good people are supporting horrific, horrific, abominable things because the narrative surrounds them and they can't think outside it. And once that narrative passed, it's easy for activists to get up and open their big mouths and shout and parade and pretend to be heroes. But meanwhile, a guy like this, he, said, he uses the word, I kept my eyes on the prize. What he means is he did what he wanted to do with this tidal wave of narrative, of racist narrative standing against him, you know? And uh, uh, these, these guys are giants, they're giants. And, and it's just to be in the, the guy's presence, uh, you know, he's, he's old enough, to, he's literally old enough to be my, my father. Uh, and to be in his presence, a, a guy, who just, with his body, you know, not with his mouth, not with his mouth, with his body, uh, walked into that tide of prejudice. You know, what I was saying about my daughters, people today don't know, they don't understand what it was. Even I am too young to really understand the kind of racism uh, that permeated the atmosphere, not just of this country, but really the world. And But, but it was bad in, in this country and certainly in the South. Uh, and, and just to say that, like, a guy couldn't fly a plane because he was black and he couldn't fight for his country because he was black, he couldn't then even after the war, become a commercial pilot uh, because he was black. And this guy just pushed that back with his body, not with his mouth. He just made it change uh, by himself. God bless him for what he did for all of us. I'm sure he will. Tomorrow is the mailbag. So be here, ask your questions. Got to subscribe at dailywire.com. Hit the podcast button. Uh, hit the Andrew Claven podcast. Hit the mailbag. Ask anything you want. All my answers are guaranteed 100% correct. How much better than that can you get? And the subscription is only a uh, hundred bucks for the entire year. Plus you get the leftist tears tumbler and I can't even list all the other things. I'm Andrew Clavin. This is the Andrew Clavin show. Oh, hooray, hoorah. The Andrew Clavin show is produced by Robert Sterling. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. And our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Adam Saievitz. Audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Alvera. And our animations are by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistant, Nick Sheehan. The Andrew Claven Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2019. Hey guys, over on the Matt Wall Show today, there is this uh, straight pride parade, this heterosexual pride parade that's happening in, in Boston in a, in a few weeks. Now, we're told that this event is offensive and stupid, but if it's stupid to have a straight pride parade, then isn't it also stupid to have a gay pride parade? Uh, we'll talk about that. Also, the LGBT lobby has not stopped going after Jack Phillips at Masterpiece Cake Shop. Um, they just, they, they keep going after this guy. We'll talk about the latest in that saga, and uh, we'll get to your emails today on The Matt Wall Show.